for October 31st, 2011. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 174. Girlfriends are horcruxes. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Matthew Rather is trapped in a haunted house where he must stay the night to successfully save his frat house from seizure by the dean of his cruel uh, university. So I, Peter Pumpkin, <laughs> tonight, it's really, it's a, it's a dare, and he had to prove he was brave. And we're all pulling for you, Matt. Just uh, if you hear a noise, uh, light something on fire and wave it about your head really dramatically, and that'll give you plot armor because people will think you're the hero. Uh, at any rate, um, we are here on today's Haunted Podcast. Spooky. Uh, He's scary. Uh, it'll be a little scary. Not that scary. We're going to talk about some movies that we saw. We're going to talk about some Three Musketeers action. We're going to talk about Red State. We're going to talk about Grimm. We're going to talk about Once. We're going to answer some of your questions. Uh, but first, before we go on, in tribute to All Hallows Eve, uh, on which day this podcast will launch, I'll ask our illustrious panel of Ghostbusters for your favorite ghost in popular culture. Uh Going through the alphabet, I'm glad I'm hosting today because I don't have to be humiliated by his jumping in front of a line. Matt Belinky, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing okay. Always a little bit embarrassed to to supplant you in the front of the line, uh, and a little bit terrified because of Halloween. Um, <laughs> don't but worry. I'm going to go. My favorite ghost of popular culture. I actually relatively recently became acquainted with her, but I think it's very fascinating. I'm going to go with the ghost of girlfriend past. <laughs> from the the movie, the Matthew McConaughey movie, Ghost of Girlfriends Past. Um, there actually is a character known as the Ghost of Girlfriend Past, played by Emma Stone, actually. And, and the name of her character is Allison Vandermeesh. Uh, and that the deal is that, I mean, it, it is a, a shameless uh, adaptation of the Charles Dickens novel, where... Um, the Matthew McConaughey character is a shameless womanizer, and she is at a wedding of um, the sister of a woman. May not even be the sister. Anyway, the, the, he likes Jennifer Garner. She's there, and he has, to, he has to sort of swallow his pride and admit that he loves her. And in order to do this, he is visited by the ghost of girlfriend's past, which is basically a, a trip back through memory lane where he um, – sees some of the women uh, that he's hurt throughout the years and, and sort of like uh, uh, get, gets to revisit the days when uh, his stepfather, Michael Douglas, uh, gave him uh, lessons in the art of seduction. Um, but <laughs> what I think is really interesting about this is normally when we think of ghosts, correct me if I'm wrong here, we think of them as being dead. Uh, yes. And in this movie, the ghosts of girlfriends past—they're all alive, as far as we know. That like, it's not <laughs> like he has killed all his old girlfriends and now they're haunting him. And in fact, I think there's there's one uh, nice gag where at the end, after he sort of swallows his pride, gets together with Jennifer Garner, all the ghosts are sort of watching over him at a party. And uh, Michael Douglas, who is actually a ghost at that point in the movie, who is actually dead, uh, tries to hit on the ghost of girlfriends past, played by Emma Stone, and she sort of blows him up, being like, "Please, I'm actually at." this party and you look over and her her in real life but of course 10 years older because this is her in the present day not in her ghost form is at the party having a good time wow Um, and i just think it's it's interesting the idea that like perhaps when somebody hurts us uh that like a piece of our soul is broken off (laughs) and that like although we move on as a person that like we are changed um and that like that that little chip of us uh, exists in like an independent way. And so like, you're you know, saying, I, I like I like the yeah, go on. 
You're suggesting that girlfriends are horcruxes in some fashion or another. <laughs> it is a, it is a very horcrux concept, which is the idea that like the the women continue to exist, but like because like like when he does them wrong, they are because I think it's interesting that like at no point in the movie do we see a ghost of a, a beloved girlfriend, a well treated girlfriend. These are all women who feel scorned by him rightfully so and so i think i think it is sort of like when you hurt somebody it does like a romantic horcrux on them and that they may that part of them may come back to haunt you even if in the present day they've moved on become a different person and forgiven you um so that that's going to be my answer not as not not terrifying but just interesting from a from a theological point of point of view i want to see the ridley scott director's cut where it's revealed that everybody has been dead the whole time and it's uh, it's a, a mind twist, but the studio made them make it more simple so that you could comprehend what was going on. Uh, anyway, that's awesome. That was a passionate response. I was ex- I was expecting something much simpler, like uh, like a ghost. I don't know. But anyway, uh, to throw another <laughs> to throw another sheet over the conversation and poke a couple holes in it, let's jump down to Mark Lee in Brooklyn. How are you doing, Mark? Well, I'm here to supply that simpler answer. That oh, uh, good, good. I'm glad <laughs> to pick that low hanging fruit off of the proverbial tree of ghosts. Mm-hmm. This is a terrible metaphor. I'm going to stop. Um, I got to go with Slimer from Ghostbusters. Right? <laughs> oh, I mean, awesome. you, you dropped the Ghostbusters reference earlier, and Ghostbusters has definitely been back in the pop culture. Uh, what I think they re-released the movies in the theaters over the last few weeks in select uh, markets, so people have been re-enjoying the Ghostbusters experience on the big screen. So Slimer is on everyone's mind, but I got to. I want to ask a couple of questions about Slimer when we're on the topic. Yep. First is that if he's a ghost. Um, in, in the Ghostbusters universe, you see a you know floating specter of sorts, right? Which is clearly meant to be the spirit of a dead person present in this world. Is Slimer also supposed to be that? And if so, like, well, how did he get to take that shape as opposed to being you know the more typically human shaped? And second is like in this world of of Ghostbusters, you have these spirits of former dead people, but you also have inter uh, interdimensional beings like Gozer. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, and the and the the Hellhound dogs. I think they have a name. My, my Ghostbusters knowledge is, is is failing me at this point. But and, and, and what was the cab driver? Uh, a zombie. You know, the one who like yeah, 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 yeah. through the tailpipe. Yeah. And Suddenly he turns, he turns into he a corpse. Yeah. 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 So I mean, there's Zool. There's Gozer. It's debatable exactly where Vigo the Carpathian fits into all this. At least an actual dead person. He seems to be more than that. Um. But yeah, these are interesting questions. Like, it, I mean, I think I've heard this before. Like, what was Slimer like before he died? Right? Was well, Slimer I mean, like a slovenly outside man? Outside of the universe, he's he's uh, it, the, it's claimed that he is he was inspired by John Belushi. So, uh, oh. yeah, was a slovenly man. That is interesting. I never thought of Slimer. <laughs> well, that is a really awful before. tribute to your old friend John Belushi. But he got his own high C flavor, which is awesome. <laughs> Ecto cooler. <laughs> yes, that's also another reason why Slimer is the best ghost ever. That's probably true. I think few other, if any, ghosts have uh, attained the status of high C flavor. That's very true. That's very true. Okay, so uh, um, unless anybody wants to throw in anything else about Slimer at the moment, we can always come back. But let's go to Josh McNeil down in Philly. How are you doing, Josh? I'm doing very well, except uh, except we've already brought up Vigo the Carpathian, which threw me for a bit of a loop because I was really looking forward to doing this. So I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> on the mountain of skulls, in the castle of pain, I sat on a throne of blood. What was will be, what is will be no more. Now is the season of evil, which is a pretty solid thing to have said if you're going to then become a ghost, I think. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. but you're just the buzzing of flies to him, Josh. Like I know. <laughs> I know. 
He's I, I am I'm, I'm Peter McNichol to his uh, to his Duschendorfness. I believe is his last name. Uh, no, my favorite ghost <laughs> in pop culture is um, is Carol Kane, the ghost of Christmas Present from Scrooged. Ooh, that's a good one. I like that one. That's Have Carol you guys Kane. seen that movie? Yeah, it's Carol Kane. It's just, uh, she's just an amazing character who who has just some glorious physical comedy where she she, she essentially beats Bill Murray to death with a toaster. Uh, screaming in a really high pitched voice, "It's a toaster," which is fabulous. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I've, I saw that movie long before I understood that there was a thing called Charles Dickens, and so um, I've, I've never really been able to watch a Christmas Carol uh, of any Disney or other version without being uh, upset that it's not that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I like that movie a lot. That's a fun movie. It's really well yeah. done. Yeah, definitely. Oh, By the way, can I, can I just slide in something quickly? Uh, sure. Speaking of Vigo the Carpathian, for years ago, I was decorating an apartment. And I really wanted a a picture, a poster of that that Vigo the Carpathian picture from Ghostbusters Two that I would then get get framed in a gilt frame and put up. And at the time, I searched uh, all over the place, and I could not find any place to get a high resolution image of Vigo the Carpathian. <laughs> and I actually set up a recurring Google search. I mean, I don't know. No, it was I set up an alarm on my calendar every six months to remind myself to research for photos of Vigo the Carpathian and I'm pleased to let you know that only recently the last time I searched I I, I found it that there is now extremely high I'm talking about 10 megabytes of <laughs> size images like 7,000 pixels tall of Vigo the Carpathian somebody on uh, I think DeviantArt uh, created it and so that if you want to make your own life-size Vigo the Carpathian picture uh, you can now do so. Um, yeah. So I just wanted everyone to know that because me, it's like I knew the internet would come through for me sooner or later, and and now it's we're living in the future. <laughs> just just another sort of random synchronicity. Um, there's a post on IO9 uh, yesterday about how you people have used the Xbox Connect to create a Vigo the Carpathian painting where the eyes will follow you. <laughs> just, uh, yeah, I don't think this is a coincidence. They they couldn't have done that until this image became available. And now yeah. think about all the art that will be unleashed. <laughs> God, that's awesome. There's all sorts of cosplay opportunities this presents too. If you can get good art, <laughs> <laughs> that's excellent. That's excellent. Great. So so for me, um, I'm going to say Pinky. Uh, because when, Pinky was always the easiest of the ghosts to avoid in Pac-Man, because <laughs> there is, uh, it's not necessarily a bug, but like there's a, a nuance to Pinky's behavior where he tries to go four squares in front of Pac-Man, but if you go up, he wants to go four squares in front of Pac-Man and then also four to the left, right? So Pinky is the easiest of the ghosts to shake, right? Uh, but he's also the one who, like, when he catches you, I think it feels like he made the smartest decision, right? I feel like Pinky has more of a narrative than a lot of the other ghosts, Inky, Blinky, and Clyde. Pete, it sounds and- like not only have you read the Pac-Man strategy guide, you have written it. Oh, I am pish-tosh, pish-tosh. I'm I, the one who I'm, but the one who comes before someone, and I'm not fit to tie his sandal. So, um, but yeah, no, uh, yeah, no. The the different ghosts in Pac-Man. I'm actually looking at uh, DonHodges.com. I I had read this previously and, and was reminded of it. Um, but there's an explanation of the different behaviors of the different ghosts, and and also what are the sort of little glitches in the way that the program is put together that causes these very strange behaviors, which together make the game more fun. You know, it's the kind of thing that happened largely by accident. Um, 
And I think it's probably better that the two ghosts do have this different behavior than if they had the same behavior. Uh, but that's pretty exciting because I think Blinky also goes four scores in front of you, but he doesn't have that weird behavior you have when you're facing upward. And it has to do with uh, the definition of their variables. To, to yeah. clarify, you're talking about Blinky the ghost, not Blinky the podcast. Yeah, not right? me. That's correct. Yes, Blinky is a ghost. You know, it's not frequently of- confused for each other, but different people. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it sort of makes me think, though, that like the, they tried to make those ghosts as small hard as they could make them but like the ai was very primitive at the time but if they made padman nowadays think of all the cunning stratagems the ghosts would be able to use like they oh, would yeah. be able to like like send pac-man a flyer in the mail inviting him to an all-you-can-eat fruit salad buffet <laughs> and then just like <laughs> and then just like burst out of the kitchen all at once like, they could even start spelling a word, and then you would expect them to go where the word's going to send. I mean, I bet you that you could now – I don't know if anybody has done this, but I bet you could make, like, a really difficult-to-beat Pac-Man game where they use that sort of learning computer technology to f- figure out where people are likely to go and just have the ghosts fan out yeah. and make it hard for you to get anywhere. Well, you know, you know the problem there is they're playing a man-to-man defense, right? They're all chasing Pac-Man, but if they played a zone defense, if they each covered a part of the map – and so, like, I don't think you could you could beat them because one – Pac-Man might outrun one of them, but he's not going to outrun all of them. Right, 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 right. That's a good question. I mean, then you I mean, because in basketball, right, for a long time in professional basketball, you haven't been allowed to play zone defenses. I actually don't know off the top of my head where but they're the rules ghosts. Are what are you going to do to them if they break the rules? <laughs> you're going to give them fouls, and then you're going to force them out of the game. <laughs> That's like, you, true. Have two, you get to eat two uh, pretzels. Um, if you get the first one, you get to get the second one. Um, I was going to say ghost dog, of course, which was like my sort of other way answer because that would be <laughs> so wonderful. Ghost dog, the way of the samurai. Um, and I guess we can think about and talk more about Forrest Whitaker as we approach Vic Mackey Freedom Day. Uh, oh my God. Which is the 24th, right, of November? Please don't is- let me forget about that. Please. No, we got it. Yeah, definitely. We got a couple. I'm setting a couple another Google pieces. Calendar thing for myself. <laughs> Set your reminders for Vic Mackey Freedom Day. Uh, I think that's the day. We'll, we'll post it on the website. It's the third anniversary of the season of the series finale of the Shield. Uh, and to not spoil anything, the series finale of the Shield sets a, a ticking clock that says, like, in three years, like something is going to happen. And we're calling Vic Mackey Freedom Day, and we're gonna have a lot of content celebrating it because the Shield is really one of our favorite shows as a, as a group of people. Um, and we love talking about it. So. Doesn't he? Spoiler alert! But doesn't he go out? Like, does isn't the last shot him like ignoring the whole being in prison thing in the first place? Well, it's kind of open ended. I mean, you don't know exactly where he's going, right? I mean, it's very possible I mean, that he's, like he's leaving work. The light, the lights go off, so he can't stay there. Yeah, exactly. doesn't doesn't he like check his gun or something though? Well, he gets his gun out of the lockbox. I mean, it could go any. You, you could believe that he chooses to uh, flaunt the restrictions and like do something under the. But I mean, you know, as far as we know, he is still working for ICE. Um, right, exactly. But that that ends this month. Hey, before we, we, we leave the discussion of ghosts completely, or mm-hmm. the shield for that matter, um, I, I want to bring up Ghostface Killer of the, of the Wu Tang Clan. I, I'm nope, asking. Sir. So, is he? Uh, a ghost in the sense like his face is a ghost and and with that ghost face he is a killer or does he kill those with ghost faces um well a ghost face killer if if i were just to look at it in a in a vacuum i would say that ghost face killer means that he is a killer primarily and he has the face of a ghost Right. right, which does not necessarily mean that he is a ghost, because uh, I mean, they, although there is a Venn diagram there, right, which is in that all ghosts have ghost faces, right? Because like they are ghosts, so by definition, right, it's like synthetic; it's not an analytical judgment, right? Like if you're a ghost, you have there, a ghost there are face. there are faceless ghosts. Yeah, I'm I not sure all, go- all ghosts have ghost faces. 
Oh, that's, I guess that's a good point because some ghosts don't have faces at all. But if a ghost had the face of a cow, would it also be a ghost face? No, I think, I think that in that case, like, I think a ghost face ghost looks like Casper, right? It, lo- it looks like a traditional stereotypical, I'm wearing my ceremonial, of, I'm wearing my dress whites, basically. Right. <laughs> Whereas that if a ghost is going incognito as like a person or a cow, then it's not a ghost face ghost. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Because so a ghost face is a face that resembles a ghost, whether or not it belongs to a ghost is somewhat immaterial. Well, yes, immater- you, you can dang, be a that's person a with a ghost face or a ghost with a ghost face. I gosh, I gosh. Now, where does does anybody know where ghost face gets his name? Um, I, I'm frantically <laughs> scanning the Wikipedia article. Yeah, I'm not telling well, me. Well, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I get some mint Milanos from whoever can answer Ghostface has frequently assumed the persona of both Iron Man and Tony Stark in reference to Marvel Comics, but I don't know where he actually gets the name Ghostface. Uh, he's wrapped under a number of personas. GFK, Ghostface, Ghostolini, Ghostini, Starky Love, Pretty Tony, P-Tone, the Wallaby Kingpin. That was just like somebody vandalized Wikipedia. Oh, man. So uh, speaking of vandalizing Wikipedia, um, there's a, The Three Musketeers is a book that people read in school and as such is probably a source of some misbehaving. Um, I'm sure that people have put all sorts of fun things about candy bars on the page for the book. That'd be a fun disambiguation page. I'm actually going to go there now. Three Musketeers. Uh, and it's bar. like – Disambiguation. What disambiguation There's whole sorts of stuff. There's three games. There's a 1987 video game based on the novel. Oh man, that looks <laughs> directly on the novel. Is it's that really better, word for is word? That a better or worse idea than the uh, the the, uh, the um sorry the the Inferno video game? <laughs> oh, this is a better idea, I think, because it's list. It's a Commodore 64 game, and looking at this Wikipedia page, it says that it's a uh, it's a computer novel. So it might it might be either a text adventure or something that's more directly based off of the uh, the actual content. Um, what is this G four? Oh, I'm just looking at emulator pages now. But anyway, Matt, you saw the new Three Musketeers movie, which stars among other people Mila Jovovich, not as a musketeer presumably, but as like is she the lady? Is that who she plays? Yeah, she is. She is Milady de Winter. Um, yep. First of all, I mean, I, I love swashbucklers. I, I love, um, love them all, mainly because of the sword fighting, which I think is a, is a, a wonderful thing on film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and not nearly – it's difficult to put it on film because it really has to be like a period piece. Um, although or Jordan Star and Wars I have a, have a complicated idea that we've never managed to flesh out about like it's, it's, it's a story set in the present day in which like gunpowder cannot exist because of like different chemical properties of mm. the, uh, of the elements. And so that like, as a result, it's like the New York city police department is just made up of badass swordsmen. Right, um, right, right. And so it's like a, it's like a swashbuckler, but it's like a, it's wait. basically heat with swords. Well, wait, Brit- British cops don't carry guns, right? Like normal bobbies. So how come they don't swashbuckle with their, yeah. with their, <laughs> I suppose they should, right? They could be a lot more flamboyant if they're just hitting people with sticks, right? You could like have quarter staffs, or you could have like a glaive disarm or something. Well, I guess big, big plexiglass shields are not really sporting in a fencing film. <laughs> it's like they have the different kinds of uh, gladiators, right? There's the one with the trident and the net, and there's the one with like the gladius and the buckler, and there's like a gladiator that's like a giant riot shield and a beanbag gun, and it just has to fight the other one. It's like the next generation of Soul Calibur. It's our new character. It's like Striker in Mortal Kombat Three. Mortal Kombat, <laughs> like that guy. You remember that guy, right? Striker. 
where he was like the worst Mortal Kombat character ever who wasn't just totally absurd because he was like a, a cop who looked like he was about 35 with a backwards baseball cap and like a sweatshirt and he would throw grenades at you and it just didn't seem sporting he like had a gun right like yeah the robots have laser beams and Sub-Zero can shoot ice from his fingertips and like Raiden can shoot lightning but Striker would like throw a flashbang at you and then shoot you with like a yeah. gun like well, the, fa- the fatality was just him emptying his clip into your face yeah pretty much it was pretty- just not that original no, exactly. yeah, it doesn't seem very sportsman-like. No, the, the nightstick I thought was a nice touch. That's true. He did have a good nightstick. Um, wait, that came out wrong. I didn't mean it that way. Uh, but anyway, so so what is good and bad about this particular Three Musketeers version? Well, I mean, what I think is interesting is the novel, which I've read and enjoy, is it's very strange because it's it's highly episodic. That like it doesn't have like a a really coherent, well thought out plot. It sort of it sort of goes on in little vignettes until it sort of finishes up, um, and it's it's kind of difficult to do a very straight adaptation of it. The sort of gold standard of Three Musketeers adaptations is from 1973. There was a two part adaptation, the Three Musketeers, and then the Four Musketeers from 1974. And that um, uh, who is in it? Oliver Reed is sort of the the most famous of the Musketeers. But then the sort of the the show is stolen by the bad guys, who is uh, Charlton Heston as the Cardinal, and then as the the Man in Black, who is the most feared swordsman in all of Europe, is uh, none other than Christopher Lee, um, a- aka uh, Saruman. AKA so, um, Count Dooku. <laughs> yeah, and and what he is a th- count too, isn't he? Isn't he Count Roquefort? Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. yeah. He actually maybe he's good at playing counts. <laughs> yes, this should be in the Sesame Street movie that uh, they make. The uh, big live action 3D big budget Sesame Street movie. He would be great if they, if they like cast all them up as just as regular people. <laughs> like, just because Christopher Lee. How would you cast that? Who would you make like Bert and Ernie and who would you make like uh, Big Bird and stuff? Oh, you know it would end up being like Jonah Hill and like. I don't know. Yeah, it would it would be like the guy from Smallville or whatever is in it. Paul Rudd and Jonah Hill is Burton Ernie. Right? Fair enough. You seem so disappointed though. Why? Why it's, in your fantasies? Like, like, Sesame really Street. Do you not like the cast? It's so obvious. See, this is one of the things I love. I love how it's like you know this this. It's like when some people can look at a chessboard and be like poring over what move to make and other people can just look at it and be like oh this position is solved and like show you what's going to happen if the game if people playing the game are any good like you're that way with alternative movie castings where it's like oh this thing's already solved i'm not interested it's like oh it's pretty clear that they just put amy adams in that role like that's nonsense um but if yeah, i'm yeah. casting that movie i have i think i have Shaq make a triumphant return to cinema as bert <laughs> What is Shaq up to? You guys remember Shaq Fu? Oh yeah, totally. I rented that game. It was terrible. <laughs> that, see, that's where the game genie was made for. Yeah. <laughs> right well, Shaq, of course, for those who aren't familiar, was a fighting game from the age before they decided to make fighting games better and were just trying to make them different. Right <laughs> when like Street Fighter Two was still fairly novel, and it was basically it was a lot like Star Wars Pod Racer for uh, Nintendo sixty four, but it was for the Super Nintendo. And for that generation, like the Genesis and things like that. And it was just a whole bunch of aliens that were totally arbitrary and random fighting each other. And you could play as Shaquille O'Neal, right? <laughs> and, and, like, and he could just kick people. And like, I don't know whether he threw basketballs at them or what. I don't remember that well. But uh, yeah, no, it was like Shaq fights all sorts of outlandish monsters. Um, yeah, so like, I mean, Shaq has, is in Jack and Jill, the new Adam Sandler movie that's coming out. By the way, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Can I just read the description of Shaq Fu from Wikipedia? 
Oh yeah, this of is the, this is the story. So the game is a storyline. In the game storyline, Shaquille O'Neal wanders into a kung fu dojo while heading to a charity basketball game in Tokyo, Japan. After speaking with a kung fu master, is it kung fu not Japanese? No, it's Chinese, yeah. Okay, fair enough. After speaking with a kung fu master, he stumbles into another dimension where he must rescue a young boy named Nezu from the evil mummy, Sedra. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, definitely. That's a big sentence right there. Is, is, is Lionel in it? <laughs> Sed, Sedra. It does, it does sound um, a little Thundercats-ish. It does sound like one of the worst improv scenes I've ever heard. It's like, Shaq, what are you doing in another dimension? I'm the mummy. Finding a mummy, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, guys, you're over-offering. It was enough to yeah. just have Shaquille O'Neal eating a sandwich. You don't yeah. have to have in another dimension. Luckily, I talked to a kung fu master on my way to a charity basketball tournament. You're over-justifying. Just play the scenes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so the three musketeers. So you were saying – so. Okay, remind me why Shaq Fu is related to the Three Musketeers. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> here's the deal. The interesting thing is that like most of the Three Musketeers movies uh, do not really follow the book very closely because the book is not very film-like. Also, the book is like – it's a little bit strange. It's a little unclear like who you're supposed to be rooting for because like the king is not a very sympathetic character and the queen is cheating on the king with this English man named the Duke of Buckingham. And so it's like your sympathies are kind of with the queen, but mainly because D'Artagnan is trying to hook up with one of the queen's friends. And right. so by like serving the queen, he can basically like get sexual favors. But it's not I, – I, you know, even as somebody who's read the book, it's one of those things where like obviously when it was written, it probably – you probably uh, felt a little different about the French monarchy than you do today. Mm. Uh, so that I'm not really sure, like, and and I mean, in a way, it's like you know the 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 book, even the novel itself, is written post French Revolution. So that like, just the idea that you're rooting for these guys who are defending the King of France is even at the time, you, I I I'd, I'd be curious to to hear from somebody who sort of knows like how are you meant to receive this? Like, are these like are we rooting for the Musketeers because like we like the the cause that they're fighting for? Or is it like we're rooting for them because like they're badass swordsmen? But like, isn't it a shame that they have to like be part of this corrupt system which will be overthrown shortly? Well, at least in the in the movies, like the the monarchy may not be presented that well, but it's present the alternative to it is not presented as democracy, but as the sort of theocracy of Cardinal Richelieu. Yeah, right? is I mean, that I, true I, in the I, book as well? The, yeah, uh, yes. I mean, Car- Cardinal Richelieu, who is played by. Uh, Christopher Waltz, the the bad no, guy. He um, is always played by Tim Curry. Yeah, every film. It's it's the Tim Curry memorial role. Uh, yes. In this case, uh, a, a, another good mustachio turning twirl by the uh, the Jew hunter from uh, Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, the, here's what I found interesting about this movie is that if you watch the trailers, you know that there are uh, airships, there are Jules Vernish uh, flying pirate ships that, that shoot through the air, and there's like steampunk uh, battle with them. Uh, and that led me to believe that this movie would be nothing at all like the novel, when in fact it is significantly more like the novel than the 1993 Disney adaptation of Chris O'Donnell, significantly more like the novel than the 2001 uh, The Musketeer version. <laughs> 
it was right. a good step not to call itself the Three Musketeers because it was right. a sort of a loose gloss on it. Um, what we, just, we called that at the time, like Hidden Tiger Flying Musketeer, right? That was. What that, <laughs> yeah. it, it, I mean, it was very much like it was like after the Matrix. Somebody's like, just get that fight choreographer and have him do the Three Musketeers. And I mean, like honestly, if you want to catch some of the fight scenes from the Musketeer on YouTube, they're brilliant fight scenes. They're really fun sword fighting. Um, it's just not much of a movie to pace together the kung fu sword fighting. Right. Um, but let, I mean, let, let me give you an example of how this version of the Three Musketeers, for all its ridiculousness, is actually uh, fairly fairly accurate to the book. Is that uh, the one of the main episodes of the book involves uh, the the queen has given some diamond studs from a diamond necklace to uh, the Duke of Buckingham as a token of her affection because she's having an affair with him. He's off in England, so she she gives him diamond studs to take home with him. The cardinal learns of this and wants to sort of expose the queen uh, and 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 to get the queen out of the king's good graces to sort of uh, drive a wedge into the monarchy. Um, and so that what he suggests is that the king throw a ball in five days' time and insist that the queen wear her diamond studs, which she wouldn't be wearing on a day-to-day basis anyway. And so the, the queen goes to her, her handmaiden, uh, Constance, who is at that point uh, friends of D'Artagnan, and goes to him and begs the musketeers to go to England, retrieve the studs from Buckingham, bring them back to the queen in five days' time, which I guess at the time was like vaguely possible to do, but would have required uh, writing fast. Um, and so that like it becomes this this thing where the cardinal has men out onto the road and he's trying to stop the musketeers at every turn. He's like uh, preventing any ships from leaving the port. And the question is like, are the musketeers going to be able to get to England and get back with the diamond studs in time for the ball, or will the queen be exposed? Um, and that's directly from the book. Um, and that is in no way in the 1993 Disney version, but is actually like pretty um, pr- pretty uh, faithfully adhered to in the 2011 version. Uh, The one, I mean, the the big difference here is uh, to make the queen more sympathetic, she is not actually having an affair with Buckingham. The the cardinal has framed her by having Mila Jovovich uh, use, like, slow-motion 3D kung fu to, like, sneak into her quarters, steal the diamond studs, and, like, uh, plant them on the Duke of Buckingham in order to Uh. sort of, like, uh, create the impression of the affair. Um, So the musketeers are reduced to being, like, personal shoppers for the queen. I mean, yeah, like, but but that's that's accurate to the book. Yeah, a lot of a lot of what they're doing is uh, basically like trying not trying to save the king and queen from themselves. That the king and queen are portrayed as like very self centered, uh, stupid, are like out outwitted at every turn by the cardinal, and are only like saved from disaster by this sort of daring do of the musketeers. Yeah, but the, one which, of the things that... Oh, go ahead. Which king and queen is this? I I'm, I'm, oh, can't remember. It's Louis, Louis the Thirteenth. It's Louis the Thirteenth. The Thirteenth. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so one of the things about the Three Musketeers that causes a problem for Hollywood is that the story is not about Three Musketeers. Right, it's about primarily it's about D'Artagnan, right, and who his father was a musketeer, and he's tr- so. There's, there's the other parallel plot that well, it sort of happens before this all leads in is the whole thing with D'Artagnan wanting to become a, a musketeer and following his father's legacy and sort of meeting these dudes, and they all have their own eccentricities and problems, right? Like, yes, that's like the first part of the book, and of course, the reason the book is so disjointed is it was published serially in like a series of kind of magazine articles, almost, right? Like, yeah, like, I mean, in novels, way, it's, like, it's, it's the Don Quixote uh, form of publishing where it's like there's going to be a series of adventures. And once again, like Don Quixote doesn't really have a uniform plot. Yes. 
Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So the thing about it is that, like, there's a really huge, in terms of the way that stories are marketed out of Hollywood, it really informs the way that the stories are put together, where you have to be able to make it clear to the people who are seeing your movie what your movie is going to be about, and also the perception of your movie and the sort of logline of the movie is part of the narrative understanding of the movie, right? So if you go to see, if you went to go see The Three Musketeers and it was a movie about a king and a queen and the three musketeers only show up at the end to save them, like, you would be disappointed and confused and it would sort of almost like feel more like an art film kind of move right to see like well what's the the secret is that there's these heroes at the end right like people don't want to make movies about the intrigue around the french court they want to make movies about the people with the funny hats and the swords that go swashbuckle right um but even then even the actual three musketeers aren't the main heroes it, more d'artagnan is the main hero and, and yeah. he relates to them they're characters they're like they're featured characters they're they're all they're all too like the that was one way i think that the disney movie does kind of capture one of the vibes of the of the book is that the three musketeers, you know, like Kiefer Sutherland, Oliver Platt, and Charlie Sheen, are all uh, kind of overdone characters that have these huge flaws and nuances, not nuances, huge flaws and eccentricities, uh, and sort of D'Artagnan is sort of exploring their world. Now, they're all communicating in complex. We, we meet them through his eyes. This, yeah. this, is, this happens in other stories, too. I, I'm blanking on it, but just the idea, like the title character being someone you don't actually meet. To the very end, like Kill Bill, I guess. Mm-hmm. There's there's a number of things. I, I, it's a familiar genre, but it's not something I can put my finger on right now. Does this ring a bell yeah. to anybody else? Well, I mean, if you think about, say, like Forgetting Sarah Marshall, for example, like the movie isn't about Sarah Marshall, but the title also tells you that it isn't about Sarah Marshall. Like the movie yeah. is very, the movie isn't just called. called- Sarah Marshall. Sarah Marshall. It's called Forgetting Sarah Marshall. It puts the perspective of the title and logline of the movie in the hands of the people who are in it, right? Yes. Um, I mean, well, if, now what, uh, what would Matt call that word? Was it a Jared? Uh... Oh, a participle. <laughs> yeah, <there you> go. <laughs> he'd call it a participle, then he'd smack us upside the head if he weren't trapped in that haunted house. <laughs> um, hey, while we're yeah. doing callbacks of previous podcast episodes, can I start singing in Harvey Feierstein's voice? <laughs> no, I don't think we want to bring that one out. Okay, this is all fine and good we're talking about here, but let's get down to brass tacks. What's the deal with the flying blimps with the cannons? <laughs> Please. I think that's what we all really want Mark, to know. All blimps can fly. That is the point of a blimp. It is not oh, strange for a blimp to be okay, flying. What's the deal? <laughs> all all blimps the- should be able to fly. I think history has proven that not all of them can. <laughs> At least not indefinitely. This is true. Uh, uh, the deal with the flying blimps. I mean, really, um, if you if you look at it from far enough away, the deal with the flying blimps are they need a big three uh, D set piece for the trailer, um, and that like the flying blimps are indeed like a a great piece of three dimensional action. There's a, a stirring mid air combat. They fly through like a lightning storm. They're jumping from blimp to blimp. The blimps have this remarkable crash landing on like the spire of a cathedral where the spire like comes like shooting through the uh, the hull of the ship. Like you know, while two people are sword fighting inside the ship. Um, you know, I mean like you know whatever. So but plot wise, um, it's is sort of it, it it's grafted on to the story in such a way that um uh how do I explain this without 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 actually recounting beat for beat the basic basically uh there's a, a Leonardo da Vinci, of course, who has to be mentioned in any in any of these movies, and anything remotely within like 300 years of Leonardo da Vinci has to mention Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, he has a blueprints for uh, flying blimps, which are stolen from his vault in Italy by the Three Musketeers in in, in an opening. <laughs> 
uh, scene that sort of introduces them. This actually goes back to what Pete was saying, which is that the book focuses on D'Artagnan and is really his story. And he goes to uh, Paris and we meet the Three Musketeers through his eyes. But the movie sort of invents this action vignette at the beginning where the Three Musketeers are out uh, in Venice on assignment. And they, they make like a thrilling canal escape with the blueprints only to be betrayed by um, Milady de Winter, uh, uh, played by Mila Jovovich. And that's, you know, she she's... Uh, their friend and ally and lover and then becomes their enemy. And so that's sort of like something that, that happens before the action of the book and they sort of put it into the movie. Um, but anyway, the, that the plans which are supposed to go to France uh, are then uh, Milady brings them to the Duke of Buckingham who then builds the airship uh, and this sort of like it's, it's one of these things that the Cardinal is doing to sort of like destabilize and delegitimize the government of France by like making sure that England has this powerful war machine, then it, it's like it's like one of these things like, gee, the king, what's he doing? How come France, How come England has this? Um, and of course, like so, by the by the end of the movie, the um, the uh, the 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 blimp has to be stopped and destroyed yeah. in order to sort of like bring back the honor of the king. Yeah. To, to add, there is one reason probably to add to this, which is that although it's about 100 years late, um, back in the late 1700s, uh, France did have a military balloon corps that existed from 1794 to 1799. And it was, you know, it was used primarily for you yeah. know, logistical support and for observation of the battlefield and things like that. So there, and a lot of the early balloon experiments were in France. You know, a lot of the early work in gas chemistry that you learn about was done in France. Um, that was a time when those things were being discovered. It was a time when France was very much on the cutting edge of the physical sciences. I mean, you know, not to not to not to talk down to John Dalton and, and to other contributions of other people. This kind of work, but uh, but I mean, yes, this is this was more like post French Revolution, like Napoleonic era than like Musketeer era, which is you know the 1600s. But there is a precedent for France being the first country to deploy balloons on the battlefield. And if you're going to pick something sort of vaguely steampunky to associate with the Three Musketeers, you could do worse than picking balloons, because sure. uh, there is some grain of truth for it. Okay. Right? There is so, some. Yeah. Also, while we're on the topic of military history. And the mm-hmm. various nuances thereof. Can we also talk about why the musketeers are primarily fighting with swords and not, I don't know, muskets? <laughs> well, if you're talking about the 1600s, you're not talking about a time in which guns are particularly uh, accurate. I mean, if you're if you're talking about like so so think back to the Thirty Years' War, right, which ends in 1648, right? The big military innovation of the Thirty Years' War, which was in, put in place by Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, was hey everybody, if you have a bunch of people with guns, rather than have all stand in a group and all like fire in a group like you would with pikemen like spread them out in a line right and that way like you know you're not going to all hit them all at the same time they can all aim at something else so like, and that's like this that is the sort of essential tactic of firearm use in war that kind of evolves from uh from that point forward if you're thinking about i think the first i always thought of the earliest use of and again i'm not i'm doing this from memory i'm not looking at wikipedia right now so i might be wrong but i always remember the early uses of firearms in the battlefield really being even somewhat decisive, go back to the early 1500s, and I'm talking about like hand firearms, not like cannons. Um, when you talk about some of the wars that, that Charles V had in Italy and stuff, but like people were always carrying other weapons, and it isn't really until you get rifles, even. I mean, I guess, I mean, yeah, in the American Revolution, there's like 
Um, almost like how the like there's for example think of the Nazis and their tanks and I've just Godwin all of us there's this perception mm-hmm. that the Panzer the Panzer division was this like mechanized division right and that everything was really high tech and it was all steel but a lot of most of the Nazis supplies of their moving armies were pulled by donkeys with wagons like they had tanks but they weren't using them a lot of them were pulled by horses um, throughout a lot of history. Even up until fairly recently, yeah, you had a gun, but in the end of the day, you would often stab people, right? <laughs> like that's what well, yeah, you had. You had one shot with the gun, and these are muskets. This is before rifling, so you had a shot that was accurate to about ten feet. Yeah, <laughs> so you so would it was have, like, like you, you basically got one chance to cheat in your sword fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you have a bunch of musketeers all shooting at the same time at something, you're probably going to hit it. But the primary military advantage that the guns would serve was psychological, right? Like the the bangs and the smoke and like – yeah, it's, it's of course like made investing in armor pretty stupid because you could catch a bullet and it would kill you, right? Like uh, like it made it made certain other kinds of tactics that were also mostly over-costed, obsolete, but it, it didn't – it didn't get rid of knives, uh, and, and that's really what a sword is, right? It is a knife. And the three musketeers, it's interesting because they never really serve the purpose of being you know, musket troops. They're always in like duels, right? They're not even yeah. in military situations almost all the time. I don't think there – are there any battles in the three musketeers? I don't even remember, but I, I mean, think they're, it's they're, – Yeah, there actually is the second half of the book, which almost never ever gets adapted because it's, it actually becomes very dark. And like yeah. you know, the girl, which was previously gotten by D'Artagnan, is poisoned and killed. Uh, and then he seeks revenge successfully, and it becomes much more Count of Monte Cristo than like fun comedic swashbuckler. But yeah. there actually is a big battle going on with some Protestant rebels in France, mm. and it's I, I can't even um, remember the details. But it's it's one of these things where like uh, back when the book came out, people were maybe a little more knowledgeable about uh, 17th century French history than we are nowadays. Mm. I guess the similarity is that making a movie about the musketeers in which they rarely use their muskets is sort of like making a movie about the about the marines in which they never stage an amphibious assault. Like their name refers mm. their name refers to their ostensible purpose on the battlefield, but at, when you talk about the individual people, they're mostly just fighters, right? I mean, they, you, know what I, you know what I think it is actually. I remember hearing about this in real life that um back when the musketeers started having a musket was like uh, a big deal like it was a brand uh-huh. new technology it was a very expensive technology so the idea that you would have an entire military unit that would be outfitted and provided with muskets was like a sign that like these must be elite elite uh troops so it's not so much that like the musket is like ridiculously effective it's more that like it is a uh it, it's a status symbol the musket and that like so they're, being, they're being like protected a- by guys with muskets means that you're important so kind of like paratroopers in I mean, the 20th I, I century. Like, the equivalent what, really? Like, you've, got a, you've got guys who are so badass they can jump out of a plane and fight us? Like, there's there's an element of that to that, certainly. I mean, it, yeah. it, would, be, it would be like if, if, like, the president, instead of the Secret Service, he had, like, the elite iPad 2 core. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow, each one of them has iPad 2s? He yeah. must be awesome. He, he has know? that, except they're working on the campaign and not to protect him. <laughs> That's um, right. That's right. It's like the Potsdam Guard, right? The Potsdam Guard is the German version where they're all really tall, um, right? And it's like not really that important to have people who are that tall in the military, but they were all really tall. And those were the ones who were the most closely held troops of the – and like the Immortals, right, for the Persians. I'm sure that they weren't that good, 
right? I mean, everybody, every you know, prick him, does he not bleed, right? Like everybody can get stabbed. Nobody's really immortal. So yeah. uh, unless they had Duncan McLeod on their side, which seems unlikely because it's at least like two thousand years too early. <laughs> but <laughs> but they had Juan Villalobos Ramirez, something something or other. He'd been around. exactly, exactly. Yeah. Speaking of speaking of old timey stories that aren't historically accurate, uh, somebody saw Grimm, right? Isn't oh, that about Josh like, and I saw Grimm. You guys saw Grimm. Now is that about the brothers Grimm? But it's like they're like CSI detectives or some nonsense. <laughs> I don't know. It is is about the great great great. Great, 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 great grandnephews, Grimm. Really? Uh, yes. So they find it necessary yes. to like to, to like create that level of justification for the thing that they're doing. That's a terrible improv scene, by the way. It's like, why are you did, investigating this scene? Like, well, because of my great, great, great. No, just do it. Just do the scene. So wait. So do they have connections to the paranormal? Is that what it is? The uh, you know the the pilot doesn't give that much away, but essentially there's a guy who's descended from the Grimms. As the brother uh, Grimm who wrote all the fairy tales, right, right, and uh, he's uh, he's his aunt, I guess, uh, shows up and like passes on this legacy to him, and now it is he has the ability to see these creatures who can otherwise hide as human beings. And the and creatures basic- are basically just what werewolves, and then uh, various other sort of demonic types of things. Yeah, in the in the first episode, they're they're primarily werewolves. They're they're the big bad wolf. Actually, is who they are. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. So it's not like uh, the it seven. Turns, turns out there was more than one. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> they are they're a number of a big bad wolf uh, rather than the. But it's um, I don't know. So, so Mark, you hated it. I don't know. Hate is hate such a strong word, Josh. Hate is such a strong word. I Just, I disliked it. I think uh, rather than like you know get dove into all the details of what I didn't like about it and how it was sort of. Uh, not particularly inspired television making. I kind of want to call it out mostly as an example of this extreme uh, version of the what we call what verisimilitude, right? Like trying to make something like dark and gritty and realistic. It's kind of like um, the the Mortal Kombat short film short uh, shorts they came out. They started like try to justify uh, in a sort of a pseudo scientific way why these people had these different powers and that sort of thing. It's like doing that. That it's making. It's applying that sort of uh, method to the Little Red Riding Hood and the wolf story, right? To the point where, like, oh, the reason why uh, this uh, wolf, Big Bag Wolf, keeps picking off women wearing uh, wearing red is because they have some, you know, aversion to red, to the color red, and, mm-hmm. you know, there's various all other things that sort of tries to take... Uh, what you know, what you could otherwise just write off as sort of a fantastical thing and put it into our modern world with some level of gritty realism. It was kind of that. That's what I found laughable, and uh, what my main takeaway was from the show. I thought I thought uh, you know some of it was kind of entertaining. It was one of those like I'll definitely watch the next couple of them because I, I do think it's an interesting idea. Um, you know, I personally don't think that the police procedural at this point has nothing to do with being about solving murders. It is simply a vehicle for like different kinds of characters to interact. Mm. Um, and this is and to these, give a character is, a gun. Yeah, <laughs> to, 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 to interact, ending in violence. Yeah. Let's put it so so wait, um, is there like an invisible Snow White that no one can see who has like a sniper rifle and is like taking out people, or or is like a good person and like people are are. Um, can't see this person having a private life involving dwarves and stuff, or is it only monsters? Thus far, only monsters. Thus far, but there's all sorts of possibilities in the future. Yeah, I mean, there's a season two potentially. God forbid. Oh, good lord! 
<laughs> um, but you like it. I mean, it doesn't sound like you like it very much. It seems kind of like like it's sort of. It's one of those like it, I think it it's got some potential. The um, there's there's a a sort of sidekick character in the making who Muskrat is a pilot. I'm just going to spoil it for everybody. Is the is a big bad wolf who has reformed. Um, and I don't know if any of you have read Fables, which is a series of graphic novels by a guy named Bill Willingham, which is also a sort of um, – it's it's fable characters. It's fairy tale characters living in the modern day, and it's genius. It's won all sorts of Eisner Awards. It's a really, really good book. Um, but but perhaps like the main hero of that book is a reformed big bad wolf. So it's um, a bit of a ripoff uh, on that one. Uh, but it's uh, but at the same time the actor who's playing him, who I recognize but don't remember the name of, um, was pretty good, and I thought that that had he had some potential to be a pretty interesting character. So like, there's promise to it. Um, it's easier to see it being terrible than it is to being good. But there's <laughs> there's certainly like a path to both. The other thing that I don't know if uh, I'll call it a turnoff, but was definitely notable was how much it was channeling Twilight, which maybe is unavoidable at this point if you've got a show. Uh, it brings these sort of supernatural elements like werewolves into the modern world. But A, set in the Pacific Northwest in Portland. Uh, B, like lots of shots of, you know, lush forests that you would see in the Pacific Northwest that are all moody and dark and, you know, with the moon and whatnot. Uh, Josh, were you getting that as well? A little bit of a Twilight vibe. Uh, you know what? I've never read or seen any of them, so I can't really you, speak to it. Are you sure that it wasn't channeling Portlandia? <laughs> um, like Fred, is it, where's like an awkward big bad wolf played by Fred Armiston, who's like, uh, ah, hey guys. That, that's, that's funny you mentioned that. Like I was, I was thinking about the show being set in Portland. Like, mm-hmm. is there are they going to work in the hipster aesthetic into the show in any way? I hope so. I hope there's a lot of. I hope there's like an incredulous. Maybe they're gonna have like a lone gunman spinoff about a bunch of hipsters who like live in Twilight Town, right? And like they they try to open an independent record store in like a town in which there's an eternal struggle between vampires and werewolves, and it like only incidentally impacts the plot, but it's like something that the audience is aware of. So there's a lot of interactions that they have where it's like a guy and a girl come into the store, and it's very obvious that the guy's a vampire and the girl is like a shy girl who hates herself, and so and like but the people <laughs> running the store are primarily concerned with the fact that they can't find the uh, Peter Frampton album that they want. And how did you put it by the microwave? You're not allowed to put things over there. Wait, oh no. Wait, 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 wait. Since when did hipsters <laughs> listen to Peter Frampton? Is that I, one of those things that have gone full circle to being uh, from not cool to being cool again? You heard it here first. This is the future. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Do you feel it's not like that. It doesn't sound like he has a mental condition. <laughs> it's the robot. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, the, it's the talk box. That, that was me trying to do a talk box guitar. Thing know, because, uh, it's hard to do a talk box impression without it coming out sounding like a different kind of impression. Mm-hmm. Oh man! So, but by the way, spe- speaking of uh, uh, of things that are vaguely kitschy that we're presenting to you for the first time as awesome, um, we still have some limited edition Xylo art uh, handmade uh, holiday ornaments that are available. And these are are they crocheted? Is that what they are? I'm not sure what the uh, yeah they're crocheted, um, and they're Otis. They're artisanal. 
They're artisanal. Yes, they're like yeah. fine cheese. Like uh, they're awesome. And we've sold some, but we haven't sold all of them. There's, we've got a – I'm not going to tell you exactly how many, but we have a limited edition run on this because uh, Kat, uh, who, you know, who, runs, who works on Xylo Art and, and is making these, can only make so many before Christmas. But we can guarantee uh, – we're extending it through November 4th to make orders. We were going to extend it to Halloween, but we haven't gotten our act together closing things out. So um, – Another week to take orders, and those will get to you by early December. They make a great gift for an overthinker near you. They also make a great gift for a kid uh, because they're cute. And so if you don't know what to get a child, uh, you can get them one of these ornaments because I think they're awesome. You can and, also hang it on your tree next to the angel, and so it will cause the kids to start questioning their faith as well. <laughs> well, you can put it next to other Side ornaments. Bonus. That makes them look quizzical, and it has the one raised eyebrow. So that's one of the pieces of business. Um, but also um, – Josh, did we not want to talk about that thing that you wanted to talk about before, or are we going to save that for another podcast? Well, I can throw it out real quick. Uh, we did a post on Thursday of last week uh, asking people to fill out a survey about um, the actual popular culture, which are the TV shows that um, you know millions and millions of people watch that overthinking it never touches, things like Two and a Half Men and NCIS. Um, we're really curious to get people's feedback thus far. We've had over 300 people fill out the survey. We would love for any of our listeners here to go online and do that. Um, I was going to give some of the results here, but Survey Monkey is being difficult, as monkeys will tend to be. So, um, <laughs> is it throwing but, at you, Josh? Is it throwing e feces at you? That's possible. Yeah, uh, it turns out a, a really uh, a big showing for the Big Bang Theory. A lot of our uh, a lot of our readers uh, apparently watching that show. So we may have to get on that at some point, but. Uh, Get on there. Let us know uh, which shows you're watching, which shows your parents are watching, why they're watching them. Um, turns out Mark Harmon is apparently just the hottest thing in the world if you're yes. over 60. That was um, really surprising. I saw that. They, that older man thing for NCIS. People love that guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So anyway, get on, check, uh, take the survey, and uh, we'll be getting back to you with the, the results on that. Great. So on that topic, like, what is it about TV – that makes us the crew overthinking a crew avoid the lowbrow stuff, the, the, you know, the the popular fare, and that skew more towards the Breaking Bad's and the Mad Men. Whereas with movies and music, I'd say that we wallow in the uh, in the cruft along with the, everyone else. I mean, I think it's just delivery. Like, I think that when you t- talk about how is music delivered to you, popular music has gotten to the point where it's using the it, – popular music has gotten around to being delivered to you by the channels that people want to use in our generation to listen to music, right? And even, even when it was being done against the will of the people who were administering the music rec- – the record companies, we were still able to listen to the mu- this co- sort of music over the media that we encounter in our life. You listen on the computer. You can listen to it on your phone. You can listen to it on your little pod thing, whatever. With TV shows, there are certain TV shows that work really well uh, taken out of context. You watch it for an hour. It's sort of a self-contained experience, and it's serialized. And that's where you get your things like your Breaking Bads and your Game of Thrones and, and any sort of HBO kind of level thing or any sort of AMC level thing, right, uh, those kinds of pieces. Uh, but sitcoms, I still feel really strongly that sitcoms are built around the idea of being a routine, that, that you, you want to watch the sitcom because at that time of night – you want to watch television. It's either you're winding down and you're eating dinner or you're done with dinner. Or it's just something that you do. I don't know if people – maybe I would love to hear if people leave in the comments. If you do watch The Big Bang Theory, do you DVR it and watch it later or do you happen to watch TV while it's on? Right? Because um, I don't watch – I never watch TV at primetime. Like I'm just not around my house at primetime. I have stuff to do. So uh, like working hours are not to 9 to 5 anymore. You know, I'm at work late. 
uh, I, I don't have an opportunity to like have all my stuff done by eight o'clock. I don't have that luxury. You know, I, all the stuff that I'm done, I'm probably not ready to go to sleep until like one in the morning and all that sort of nonsense. And I'm sure a lot of other people pulling in multiple part-time jobs if they've got jobs. You know, like it's not an era that lends itself to primetime TV watching. Like it's part of a lifestyle. But I don't know. What do you guys think? There, I think there are other reasons why these shows aren't aren't uh, drawing the attention we might think that they might or otherwise. Well, I think there's something to that. I think also like uh, shows like. Um, you know, their audience is not watching on Hulu. Uh, they're not watching on things. Wait, what uh, you what know. kind of shows? I didn't uh, catch that part. NCIS. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's a show designed for the boomer generation and is delivered still on broadcast television. Right. You know, right, right. it's not. Um, there's not a big chunk of it that is, you know, available online. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I- I don't. I, I honestly have trouble figuring out why like Two and a Half Men is popular. I mean, the best thing I could I could say is that TV seems to be more sticky than other mediums. That it has more inertia, mm. and that basically Two and a Half Men. It. I, I. I don't think anyone on this podcast is going to say that it's the funniest show on TV nowadays. But like twenty years ago, it might have been one of the funniest shows on TV. <laughs> and that like it kicks there, the pants off. Jonathan like, Silverman's the single guy. <laughs> I mean, I guess I guess what I'm saying is that like it seems to me that the shows that are very popular are the shows that seem a little retro to us. That there's something. Um, there's something simplistic about them that, like, it's a very straight crime procedural. It is a very, you know, a, a by the numbers laugh track comedy, and that's something that's um, trying to sort of like push the medium a little, like Community or Modern Family or Mad Men. Is I mean, these shows are popular. These shows are successful, but a sort of a mainstream audience doesn't want to be challenged. I mean, I guess I guess it goes with any entertainment. Is that like when people want to be entertained, they don't want to be challenged. They want they want something that's comforting. They want a popcorn movie, and I guess that Mad Men is not a popcorn TV show. You know, yeah, I mean, especially when you're considering the difference between taking a special Saturday night and going into the city to an independent theater to watch a special movie versus like what are you having with your Stouffer's in the microwave, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. What are you having with like your dinner uh, when you've already, I mean, it's not that people are lazy and they don't want to be challenged. People are challenged all freaking day. Like the world is <laughs> not easy. You know, like people come home from being challenged and it's like, Oh, now my TV wants to challenge me too. Like, thanks. You know, I, I spent <laughs> however many hundreds of dollars on you from the stupid Best Buy. And now you're telling me I'm not smart enough because I can't watch freaking Charlie Sheen be a douche. Maybe I just want someone to take the edge off for Christ's sake. Oh I mean, God, it's better than alcoholism. It, it is a good but, point that, that I, I find that there's a lot of, shows that i like that i look forward to watching but i cannot watch like while i'm trying to eat dinner or clean the apartment you know so that i have almost two tiers of shows that i record the shows that like i need to like have my full concentration for because they are complicated and there's a lot going on and if i miss a line i have to rewind and watch it again and the shows where like it doesn't even really matter if i'm like paying if, if i zone out for five minutes or not because like you know it's 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 uh can be on in the background, and exactly. I think there's a there's a there's a place for both kinds, and it seems that like America turns to the television as something that's on in the background, as opposed to something that they have to put effort into to to be able to to get a lot out of. Right, right, right. Which of course creates a difference in perspective between the people who watch television and the people who make television. That doesn't have to do with them being idiots. Right, it's like, well, of course you care about the TV show. You make it; it's your job. Like, you better care about it, right? Like, uh, as opposed to somebody who, for whom it's just, you know, for Bison, it was Tuesday. Like, this is not a big deal for me. Um, yeah. But yeah, 
But anyway, uh, and before we close out, I did call out the hue and cry on Twitter for questions for our panel, although I might have accidentally done it from my own account. Um, but one of the one quick question for everybody, because we just got a couple minutes left before we run out of time here, is what's the best Halloween movie? And this is from Megan from Lombard. She wants to know because uh, I want to encourage engagement with our audience and some feedback and get their voice heard, even if we can't get the freaking Ustream to work. Uh, if they can, uh, if we could talk about uh, some questions from the crew, just a little bit, pepper it every once in a while. So, what's the best uh, Halloween movie? You know, Go I have, a, I actually have a recommendation uh, for this. Huh? There was a. Um uh, there's a, a movie in 2007 called Trick or Treat. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It 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 was one of those. It went direct to video, but it, it had a little bit of an internet buzz going on, uh, and never really got a release. But it's it's a little bit of a. It's made up of, I think, three or four different sort of interlocking, uh, very stylized, scary stories on Halloween. And it's like funny and creepy and it's very well shot. I think it's like kind of a famous cinematographer. Uh, Cast is good. I'm I'm reading the cast right now. It's uh, Dylan Baker, Anna Paquin, Brian Cox. Uh, so I mean, some some good names, and it's legitimately creepy and clever, and it's got some neat sort of like. low budge but like well done special effects um and it's uh, even if even if you want to type the trick or treat that that's er with an apostrophe before the r and look at some photos i think it's like you know you'll you'll get the sense of whether uh whether it's something that you dig mm-hmm. cool any other takes on on great halloween movies or do you think we should leave it at that you know Not- birth of a nation you want to watch movies <laughs> people with white sheets running around scaring yeah. people there you go trick or treat <laughs> trick oh. <laughs> i'm gonna trick you by this is this is perhaps not overthinking but just thinking but uh i, I do think tim burton really knocked it out of the park with nightmare before christmas mm. like, yeah no, that's, it's, that's uh, a great movie it's really just incredibly well done and 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 catchy tunes and and uh just you know that, that captured the spirit of the holiday sort of as it is better than uh, just about anything else. Hmm. Cool. And I'm going to recommend the, uh, the the motion ride at Hershey Park to really learn about the making of chocolate because that's a fine film if you ever get a chance to watch it about like the cocoa butter and all the well, – I guess they don't use that anymore. It's now all like the crazy trans fats and stuff. But you don't see a lot of movies about the candy side of Halloween. It's all about the murder side of Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> For most people, Halloween's more about candy than it's about murder. But whatever. Fine. Also <laughs> that, about sexy costumes. Not forget the sexy Yeah. Costumes. Do they have any <laughs> sexy – oh, you know what's a great Halloween movie is The Karate Kid it is a great Halloween movie. Oh, yes. There you go. There you go. Yeah, so there you go. So uh, I was at a Halloween party last night, and and the sort of discussion question came up like, what would be the most absurd, sexy blank costume? Uh, uh, I had and, a friend uh, just sexy gold gold prospector one year. That was funny. No, what did you? Uh, what did you get? <laughs> uh, I think the winner last night was sexy Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> oh wow! Um, but uh, but, but like, uh, you know, that's not even that hard because scuba diving equipment is sort of skin tight. Yeah. <laughs> Like I think it would be harder to be like, who's one of those Arctic explorers who like died of frostbite before they got there? Oh, like Edmund sexy. Hillary on, on that. Yeah, how could you be sexy Edmund Hillary? <laughs> 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 and I think that's the question we'll have to leave the panel with as they enjoy this scary, haunted, Tenzing Norgay helped. Is that the name of the guy? I forget it, the Sherpa. Yeah, so when you go out there <laughs> trick-or-treating tonight, bring your Sherpa because they're the only one who knows where you live and they can bring you back to your house. Otherwise, you're just you're totally lost on yourself. But 
Uh, between now and when you sort your candy for the good stuff, we remain your eternal. Uh, oh, and you had to dial our phone number. Email us at podcastoverthinking.com, 2203-6401. Awesome. And Josh, is the survey still open? Survey is still open. All right. Survey's open. Numbers open. Emails open. Get an ornament for your Christmas tree because Christmas is right around the freaking corner, like it or not. And while you're dodging ghosts and are expressing your lack of fear through funky uh, new Jack Swing beats, we remain uh, over com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. <laughs> it's <a> something strange <laughs> in the neighborhood. <laughs> Who are you going to call? 203 285 Also Ghostbusters. Yeah, both of them. Yeah. Ghostbusters first. Are you sure? I don't know if that's wise. Tell us about it. <laughs>